Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, welcome back to the podcast though. What does that mean? No one knows. So um, <laughs> I was going to ask you, you edited the Nintendo Wii Draft, which is our previous episode. At the time people are listening to this uh, this episode, uh, the, the poll has closed. We have no idea yet what the results are because the poll hasn't gone live in... Uh, when we're recording this but you edited the episode i was curious how you felt about how it went uh listing back because that'll be interesting to people who have been following the poll on twitter yeah i think it's i think it, a i was really pleased with the draft i thought it was a really good episode i thought it was a, a really nice comprehensive uh look at the Wii. um even if i do say so myself i came out thinking that based on how these previous drafts have gone and the psychology of people who tend to click on these things I think your double Zelda Mario Smash is just so, so very hard to beat. <laughs> it's tough because I, when I listened back, I thought, oh, Skyward Sword is kind of an underpowered pick because you can get it on the Switch. So there's like no reason to play that version. Yeah, really. I, I, but, I went too yeah. heavy with that line of logic, though. Like I should have put like fucking Xenoblade on there or something. Like I, I stand by that all the things I picked are things I really like. And, you know, I wouldn't be embarrassed to have them on there, but it's maybe lacking in a, f- in a few big hitters. I think I overthought it a bit and ended up nobbling it a, a tiny bit. I think we're going to see a lot of um, secret other M fans come out of the woodwork for this one, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I, but I, I also think I may have upset some people by dismissing Excite Truck, which is a bit of a, feels like it should be a back page podcast type game because it's one of those sort of weirdo 7 out of 10s, but I, it, it leaves me so cold, but I, I worry I'll have alienated some of the castle loyalists. <laughs> yeah, I sort of thought, should I have mentioned Tatsunoko versus Capcom for <laughs> um, uh, beat-em-up? Uh, but then I, th- I had no attachment to the anime characters element of that game, and so, like, you know, it'd be completely bogus to pick that. Yeah. Um, Smash I, Bros is something I would actually play, you know. I did a in a developer interview for Tatsunoko versus Capcom and I'm I was like the least qualified person to do that interview you know <laughs> I am not a fighting game guy at all and talking to the guy my questions are really dumb though I did get a good answer about why they didn't put Phoenix right in it which at the time was he said that the you know they could only imagine a version of Phoenix Wright who attacked with his iconic sort of speech bubbles and they said that the difference in length and the localization process would change the physical properties of those moves so much um, that they decided not to put it in. Obviously, they then did put Phoenix right in the fighting game. Um, so they obviously overcame that fear. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think people would have minded if they just kept the original characters, but then changed the audio so he was saying, objection, yeah. take that. But hey, it doesn't matter because he made it into Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 and uh, put Galactus on trial <laughs> in an iconic moment of video game storytelling. So yes, good stuff. Not the first time that's come up on this podcast, unsurprisingly. Um, Matthew, it's another mailbag episode. Our peers said, don't do it, they're too long. <laughs> and yet, we stood our ground. Here we are. How are you feeling about it? Uh, yeah, good. Uh, we've got some some nice self-indulgent letters. Actually, self-indulgent makes it sound like the readers are self-indulgent. I mean, it, it's indulgent for us because a lot of the letters are like, you guys are so great for like 90%. And then at the end, they're like you know would you kick Eugene Nacker in the nuts or something and you're like that's the general theme of the letters <laughs> yeah there's those there's like nothing in between those really um it's 
<laughs> the other problem is because I, I hastily put this together, I should have cut some of these down because they're quite long and didn't have time. So they might end up being really long on the podcast. And we'll see. I think we've got about 27, Matthew. Should we get straight into it and fire through them? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I'll go first and you read out the next one and yeah. so on. All right. Question one. As uh, from Nick, I've been thinking about how games have been around long enough that I can find the idea of yet another World War II FPS boring and derivative. However, the same might not be true for younger gamers who will increasingly who have increasing access to platforms and game libraries. I was curious if this is something that comes up in games writing. Have you noticed any generational divides in terms of how older writers approach games versus how fresh young voices view the gaming landscape? Um, do you want to answer this first, Matthew? Yeah, you go right ahead. <laughs> Good, you can unwrap a Rennie or something. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> I um, yeah, I, I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I think Pokemon and Kingdom Hearts are examples of this, where you definitely, people who, I, I feel like I'm on the age cusp of this a little bit, um, because I felt like I saw writers who are younger than me um, talking about Pokemon and Kingdom Hearts in a more credible way, taking them more seriously, whereas like the uh, people who are older than me, just like even slightly, didn't take them seriously at all. And I've seen that kind of like attitude reverberate a bit through through US and UK media. That's not just a UK thing. Mm. Um, so that's one example of it. It's just kind of a taste sensibilities thing. And you'll probably find there'll be another generational divide with um, with with like stuff like Roblox and stuff. You'll get writers in about five to ten years writing about those sorts of games, you know, with with like mega knowledge and interesting angles. But like they don't exist yet, and then the kind of younger audience will probably feel alienated by them, and and it'll kind of continue like that. I think. Can't quite bring the World War Two thing to kind of like um, to, to fit that in my head, but like I think that's in terms of generational divide. I think that's it. Really, it comes down to like sensibilities. Were you there at the time? How old were you at the time when this thing arrived? And that's a huge part of um, the sort of cornerstones of how people write about games. I think. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I would agree. I'd say the one thing which is maybe different and won't be recreated is the fact that you had a the generation who grew up reading games magazines. I think, have a slightly different sensibility to people who've grown up in the online or the the YouTube era. That won't just naturally repeat itself. I think there was a bit more veneration of previous writers and this is this is going to sound like me being like why don't young people respect me more? Um, (laughs) But I definitely like when I joined it was just sort of like holy shit it's all these like legends of games writing and I get to work with them I can't believe it but I definitely sort of employed people who by you know even just in the 10 years by the time it got to employing people would sort of shrug at like anyone and be like eh. and uh, I don't know if that that's that's a sort of generational shift I guess a lot of it's just tied to like the overall generational shift that happens in like every sphere you know it's it's not related to games it's it's your pop culture references it's it's how you see the world you know generally people today are are, are, this is a broad generalization but a bit more kind of sort of politically engaged i guess and there's a lot more of that in online writing like i'm still a bit of a dinosaur i'm a bit old-fashioned i'm a bit of a graphics gameplay sound and playability uh, (laughs) kind of person but there are young people who have, have that outlook too you know, I've I've employed plenty of people who I thought had the the spirit of old, even though they were much much younger. So, yeah, I don't know. Making generalizations about young people is such an old person thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and that's sort of that, that's why I kind of try to avoid doing it with that, my answer there. Yeah, um, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I think about how um, there was an editor. I think it was a Marvel editor who said that 
um, when people complained about the comics not being as good as they used to be, they made the point that, like, well, you're not the same person that you were that you used to be. And so your sensibilities are different to how they were. Your life situation was different. So perhaps your enjoyment of X thing was was tied to how you felt at the time. And maybe now you feel differently and your your artistic sensibilities have changed. So you don't click with the same stuff. And I think mm-hmm. that's like that's like true to a, to a large extent. Like this, there are things I kind of hold dear, but then my sensibilities move on quite fast as well. I, I feel like every year my game tastes change quite substantially. And oh, I think yeah. that like, that's why pigeonholing people by age is quite a tricky business. Cause uh, it's very, it's plausible to me that someone who's 21 now could play Deus Ex and enjoy it. That's perfectly plausible to me or half-life or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, generalization is a bit tricky. Yeah. And I, I guess the other big difference is now that, everyone is a lot more exposed as an individual. Like, you sort of represent yourself probably more than you represent an outlet or magazines where 10 years ago you could vanish into a magazine quite happily and, you know, there were personalities that people liked, but you existed within, like, a quite a hidden ecosystem, you know? Like, I felt like I was only writing for people who were paying five quid for Endgamer and you could feel quite safe and nice in there, where now it's, you know, the eyes of the world are watching, you know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, ev- sure. everything you do and that's that's so tough because it means it's kind of harder for things to be sort of frivolous and silly i think i think people feel like everything has to feel a bit more important um because they don't want to be seen as frivolous in the eyes of their peers but again we're veering into old man uh shouts at clouds or whatever the thing is <laughs> <laughs> all right let's leave it there then matthew and move on to question two yes uh hello gents or technically hi gents sorry i don't want to edit that hi gents uh you had a lovely safe oh (laughs) i hope you had a lovely safe festive period i've really but i'm gonna start this one again (laughs) oh yeah sure sure hi gents hope you had a lovely safe festive period with your families and all the best for the new year I recently received a subscription for Edge and treated myself to the massive back catalogue available through the iOS app and noticed a certain Matthew Castle cropping up as a contributor almost always when there was a large Nintendo game due for review. The question I have might be a little strange, but I was wondering what the sharing of reviews between main writers and freelancers was like when you were both on magazines. Was a freelancer brought in to cover a specific game, or would it be a case-by-case and a freelancer might review something they maybe wouldn't have normally reviewed? Love the most recent top 20, 2021 lists. Some excellent stuff, some I already own, and some I'll be wanting to try. So all the best for Backpage Podcast in 2022. And that's from Ryan Cobain. Yeah, so I guess this is um, probably more of one for you, Matthew. But like, um, I found it sort of varied, you would sort of there were some genres where you just needed an expert to talk about it so mm. you'd go get that you go get that expert but it was also common that someone might review a game for like two different outlets where there's probably very little chance that the readership will cross over so yeah. like a console mag and a pc mag for example that just that can be useful when the game's like super long yeah I, but yeah yeah i i would say as a rule most magazines tend to keep the really juicy awesome stuff like in house like that's one of the big perks of the job you know when you're in a house on a magazine is you sort of get first dibs and it would have to be a bit of a a deadline nightmare for something to get really for something big to get handed off like on a nintendo mag a big first party game you know we'd tend to move heaven and earth to make sure someone on the mag actually reviewed that um over a freelancer and you're right i like 
smaller stuff tends to cross over with the more niche genres where you maybe want some specialist knowledge. I think the best freelancers can do a bit of everything. Uh, I always sort of balked a little bit at people who are like, oh, yeah, I don't really do that. And you're like, oh, all right, and, you know, <laughs> fair enough. Adds to, you know, blacklist. Weirdly, a lot of the stuff I reviewed for Edge actually wasn't Nintendo. I didn't review a lot of Nintendo stuff for them. Uh, I, I really love the Edge anonymity, and I still do. Like, still to this day, I know, I know on this podcast I've said a couple of the things I've reviewed, but a lot of them I haven't, and a lot of them I wouldn't, because I kind of like that they're out there. Um... You know, I, I don't know if that's just a, a mad nostalgia for the magazine, but I, I always thought that sort of that that sort of air of mystery was was you know quite precious because it meant you couldn't read anything into it, you couldn't dismiss anything. Cause you were like, oh, I fucking hate that guy because people bring so much baggage to this stuff. And actually, you may love a review by someone who you would normally hate, and if their name was on it, you might not have the same relationship. So, yeah, and that's how Matthew Castle escaped scrutiny for his Skyward Sword Ten. Um, uh, yeah, well, I've, 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 you know, I've taken some ownership of that now, but I am denied <laughs> about when we talked about it on the podcast. I was like, should I talk about that? Like, I, I still even, you know, I even thought like, should I ask Edge if I should talk about that? But uh, these days, it seems a bit more relaxed in terms of people saying, "Hey, get the new Edge." I reviewed Blur, and that's because they're proud of their smart words, and I get that. But I still think there's something very special about someone who really knows their shit reviewing something though you know when someone really gets something and you read their review and you're like oh they really know this stuff inside out and there's certain people who i am excited when they review certain things and it's maybe a bit harder to get that you know unless you're really keeping a close eye on it it's it's harder to to like learn what those things are with people yeah i think like this um specialists were particularly important when i was on pc gamer because it was like these were genres that had diehard fans, so you didn't want to get them wrong. When I, we hired like um, Fraser Brown, uh, I think it was in 2018, that was a massive relief because he's like a massive strategy and right. like RPG guy. Like he knows those genres inside and out, and adding an authority like that to your team is incredibly valuable. Mm. Um, and when you're kind of like freelancing out to people, you can't always guarantee you'll have their time, for example, because obviously they they might be in high demand. So. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. There's something very special about, like, I, I would look forward to a review from a certain freelancer about X or Y because they were the experts, you know? Mm, definitely. Cool. All right, Matthew, I think we can leave that one there. So on to question three. Uh, this is from Chris Doherty, who do, does all those Photoshops, Matthew. Um, oh, the cursed Photoshops. <laughs> <laughs> there are more of them I haven't tweeted out yet, but um, I'm saving them for a rainy day. Um so what do you think needs to be improved in the gaming industry for either the consumers or makers of games? Also, are you interested in buying a picture of a monkey eating a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> I'll do you a good price. 300k. You buy? Remember, you won't actually own it, though. Kind regards, Chris. Um, P.S. Your latest episode, which I think was the Game of the Year episode at the time, was um, reminded me to play Hitman again. And lucky for me, Hitman 3 was cheap on PS4, so grab that also. Thanks again for the recommendation. Need to give that Hitman episode special another lesson. That was a good episode. Yes, uh, Matthew, because I like work in like the publishing side, maybe you should take this one. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge and like super broad question. I was actually struggling to think, you know, maybe because I don't think on these things too much. And uh, I am one of those people who's a bit too frivolous that I was talking about earlier. I feel like it's a bit, 
it would be a bit rich for me, a relative, you know, still a relative outsider as a games writer, to be like lecturing the games industry on what it should be doing, which may be seen as a bit of a cowardly answer. But the truth is, it's an incredibly complicated business. A lot of its workings are a mystery to those of us outside. We only get snapshots of it, investigative journalism, and and the idea of like using those snapshots to say this is how it should and shouldn't be done feels a little dubious to me. So, uh, I don't know. I sort of struggle with this one, to be honest. <laughs> Well, it's like a massive question, isn't it? So, like, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like, I, you know, for the consumers, I think things are pretty good. I think you've got lots of avenues to play, you know, an awful lot of games. I think it's easier now to play games, you know, be it on a financial level or an accessibility level than it ever has been. Like, in a way, I think consumers have never had it so good. You know, you feel like you're under constant attack because people are trying to shove all this sort of bullshit into things that people don't necessarily want you know at the moment you know consumers maybe feel on the back foot because of all this sort of adoption of nft stuff and you're like well i don't really want anything to do with that you know that doesn't speak to me i think it's environmentally unwise um you know there's always repercussions from it but maybe because i've been doing this for so long as a journalist and my relationship with like buying and owning games is massively skewed but i think this is a good time for consumers, I think. Do you, do you agree? <laughs> uh, I think like the choice thing is very true. Like um, I also, this is a really specific example of something, right? But like Game Pass aside, which is amazing value, and like how easy it is to buy games online at good prices because you got price comparison sites and things like that. I think that like the Epic Game Store, right? I just had those like three Tomb Raider games for free, and the idea of anything like that happening when I was a kid was just it was never going to happen like if you just have if you have no money you're playing games but you have like an okay pc at home and you can just grab these tomb raider games as well as everything else that epics put on that store for free then like what a great what a great position you're in like even just on that level like that seems amazing to me just in Mm. terms of like a thing you can enjoy as a consumer yeah I, i would just say the other half of the question it's not me going like oh it's all fine nothing needs to be changed i just think that it's you know, it's basically like pointing to a locked box and saying, oh, well, there's loads of stuff that happens to change in there. And, you know, I, I, I feel like even with the level of journalism we have, I've got a very superficial grasp of like the actual kind of concerns that underpin the industry. And I would worry about seeming infantile in my analysis to be like, everyone deserves more money and everyone should be kinder and you know like obviously but also it's way more complicated than that all right on to the next question then matthew which is less complicated i hope it's a funny one please tell me it's about sandwiches (laughs) Um, (laughs) i need need to get more back into my zone (laughs) this is your one to read out are you good reading this one it's kind of yeah okay yeah hi uh samuel and matthew thanks a lot for the podcast i just discovered it recently and managed perhaps unwisely to binge listen to all 58 episodes in the space of about two weeks good god imagine how many times you've heard me say you know or like awful Uh, yeah or psychology of a gumba (laughs) or psychology of a gumba (laughs) uh happened to wait a week for the next episode now seems too long well yes it's um yeah well i'm sorry about that (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
One topic. Insightful comment there. Yeah. Uh, one topic that's been mentioned a couple of times is that magazine reviewers back in the day would often look down on 2D games compared to the brave new world of 3D games. I was reading Dreamcast magazines at the time and remember being constantly aghast at their terrible opinions of near-perfect arcade conversions of 2D games. Uh, here are some quotes from UK Dreamcast magazine. There's loads of these, but it's it's generally mad stuff like Street Fighter 3 Third Strike. Um, as far as the Street Fighter series goes, you couldn't do much better than this. Unfortunately, that isn't saying much. And uh, on Bangio, they say the game looks crap. This kind of thing could have been done on the Mega Drive, let alone the Dreamcast. Um, so what exactly was going on? Was there some kind of mass psychosis afflicting reviewers back then? How else can you explain why someone would consider Street Fighter 3 as vastly inferior to Ready to Rumble 2? Ready to Rumble. Were reviewers afraid to be seen as stuck in the past if they raved about 2D games and felt pressured to overcome the flaws of 3D games, e.g. Sonic Adventure 1 and 2, which got 90 and 93%, even Spawn in the Demon's Hand, which I owned and it sucked, it got an 84% review. Uh, cheers from Doc Hauser. Hmm. Yeah, I think that this was like a very specific late 90s phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and then like, yeah, because there was this big push towards 3D, a lot of the, uh, if I recall, like a lot of what was sort of held against the Saturn at the time was that it couldn't do 3D very well. And so that was why PlayStation seemed more exciting. And obviously for Sega, there was this quite stressful process of trying to get a Sonic game made for the Saturn, which they weren't able to do. Mm. And like, that was kind of like 3D-ish for, for a while. And like, it just became like a massive center point of everything. And like in the way that like a, a big kind of like controversial subject now can take over the headlines for like a couple of years. Um, and we can end up talking about the same things over and over again. Like, I feel like at this point, 3d was a new thing and, maybe the, the the landscape was just we want to see this and like yeah. anything that's old is old and that people didn't really have the nuance that we have now of like 2D revival movements and indie games and things like that. Would you say that's fair, Matthew? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, you're talking about this huge, huge monumental leap, probably the biggest leap there has ever been in terms of one generation to the next in terms of what they could do and what to expect. And the excitement around there, like, I I don't judge people for getting taken up in that excitement. Like, I read this stuff at the time and didn't, like, flinch it at all. I thought, well, yeah, of course, you know, of course you want everything to be Mario 64. And in the shadow of Mario 64, anything which isn't trying to be that ambitious seems sort of weaker by comparison. I mean, luckily, games these days have got a much longer tail on them. We can return to them. There are virtual console systems to... uh, you know, drag them into the modern day um, so you can still kind of experience them and, and have the renewed appreciation and, like, generally, you're right, like, the, the that lust for 3D has calmed. Like, I still think a lot of people do feel this way. You know, I, I feel, like, whenever you see a, um, like, a game announcement thing, like the Game Awards or the Future Game Showcase or whatever you know someone is like we're going to reveal 20 new games the comments are like oh you know not indie games by which they think 2d games they want to see like metal gear solid style you know production values you know we're talking about the most expensive triple a people want more triple a and there is less triple a and i feel like they take that out on the 2d scene a bit but and it's mad because 
with what machines are capable of now, it's it's like two D plus. You know, there's the huge potential of you know all that systemic stuff you can do, and ah, uh, yeah, it's it's all good now. Yeah, but. not much more to add, really. I just think it was like very much of that moment sort of thing. Yeah, and, I, uh, am, I was surprised reading those quotes though. They are like surprisingly venomous for for like a Dreamcast mag where it's not like you know beggars can't be choosers, right? Yeah, so the, that that um, ready to rumble quote, I'll just read that out. So it's a Street Fighter Alpha Three. This is the sort of game which should stay banished from the glorious realms of the Dreamcast. Street Fighter was a great game on the SNES, but on the Dreamcast, it's like a minnow swimming with the sharks of Soul Calibur and ready to rumble. Anyone foolish enough to spend money on this deserves to suffer for their stupidity. <laughs> that seems like de- definitely seems very harsh. Um, uh, yeah, so. Um, but hey, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Who knows? Maybe he loved. Uh, you know, he obviously really loved Ready to Rumble. Old Afro Thunder, or whatever he was called. A legendary <laughs> character. Could... We all remember him. There's a bit of energy here of, like, um, swimming with the sharks of Soul Calibur. Yep, very good. And Ready to Rumble. Like, I need a second <laughs> game to make my point. And, like, Ready to Rumble was the closest available. But um, yeah. This did happen at the time. There was a lot of, like, man- mania where people's love for 3D made them say mad things. Like, I remember there's, there's this, like, infamous IGN review of um, Rayman... 2 on the N64 or is it Rayman 3 it's one of the Rayman games where it's literally like you know Miyamoto's going to play this game and cry because it reveals him to be you know the terrible developer he really is and like watch out Spielberg's going to play this and see what modern day special effects can really look like and you're like watch out I mean like it's got a character he's just a pair of symbols with an eye I mean give me a break (laughs) everyone went mad Late 90s, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just have to, some things just have to stay in the 90s, really, including the discourse. So let's um, let's go on. Um, so, hi, Sathew Casperts. First off, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and love tuning into new episodes weekly while re-listening to some of my favourites. I don't care what anyone says, mailbag episodes are my kind of bag. Well, glad to hear it. Our peers don't feel the same. Um, <laughs> um, my question is as follows. Um, what two bath eateries would you combine, e.g. via the Dragon Ball Fusion dance, to create something greater than the sum of its parts? You're welcome to handpick the best bits of each restaurant slash pub slash cafe to make your own beautiful creation. This question goes to each of you. If this question proves too easy to answer, <laughs> I have provided an optional bath extreme difficulty modifier. Hideo, Hideo Kojima or Shigeru Miyamoto, you pick, <laughs> meets you at your establishment and will only agree to a world-exclusive interview if they enjoy their dish. Thanks again, and looking forward to the next episode. Um, cheers. That's from uh, Basim. I, uh, thank you for sending through the uh, pronunciation, pr- pronunciation of your name. I appreciate that. Um, so, yes, uh, Matthew, combine two bath restaurants to make a greater one. Where are you at with that? I mean, so the easy route here is the the flavour and the dishes and the tastiness of JC's Kitchen, but married to basically the reliability of any like shop or locked down location. <laughs> um, so, you know, f- for the sake of argument, let's say Intermezzo. Think about Intermezzo. That guy's been there for like, you know, twenty years or something. He is, he is the, like the the essence of a reliable nine to five shopkeeper. So I want JC's food, but like Intermezzo's kind of not work ethics not the right word but like um availability yeah reliability and and sent you know i basically the the mad thing is we used to have this when jc was consigned to a wooden hut (laughs) 
Uh, yeah. Because he used to live in it, live. He used to work in this shed <laughs> um, in Green Park Station. And I kind of want him in prison there again. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I never really got why he gave up that location for a location that wasn't permanent on old Bog Island. Um, and the other th- yeah, I mean, whatever happens on Bog Island, you will all... Stays on Bog Island? <laughs> yeah, it's got the word bog, which, like, when I think delicious food, do I go to a place called Bog Island? Probably not. No, it's like, it's now, because uh, I work from home again, it's now, like, hard, too hard to get there at lunchtime, so it's too much of a faff, so I've... <laughs> Not only do I not know if he's there, well, not only do I not know if he's there, but like um, I don't even go there to check. So um, I have no idea. He could could be there every day of the year for all I know now, and I've got no idea, but I I very much doubt it. Yeah, I think availability for JC's Kitchen is good. I will say that for me, I probably haven't talked about my actual favourite place in Bath, which is uh, the Thai Hut in Green Park Station. Oh, yes. I I go there like every week pretty much because they do like the best like pad Thai I've ever had. Um, and it's like it's like seven quid or something. It's a really good price. It's like restaurant quality food out of this little hut. The only thing I'm like not massive on with it is that it's not open. <laughs> it's not open um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. No, wait, uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesdays. So again, mm. I'd like that on tap. Basically, um, they also run out of stuff. They do, yeah, they run out of stuff. That's just because it's so popular. But right? that's People the thing. You have to get there early, like getting there and you see it's open you're like win it's open but then you get closer and you see that they've scratched off pad thai yeah if you're not there by one it's like it, it gets dicey for sure um but the, i would um, marry and curry's very good i would marry them to like the production line of mcdonald's <laughs> <laughs> you never go to mcdonald's and they're like oh we're out big macs <laughs> you know <laughs> Well, you say that, but when I've done uh, McDonald's orders, they've been out of uh, things like apple pies and McFlurries and, really? and um, yeah, milkshakes and stuff. Yeah, I've had that I mean, before. So. Apple pies are maybe a bit more niche on the menu. I think like, if you went to McDonald's and they didn't have fries, you'd be like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah. And apple pie would be like, uh, I can kind of see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I like uh, your logic there, Matthew. Do we need, uh, do we need to, to enter Bath Extreme difficulty mode? Oh, I don't re- I don't know where I'd take Kojima or Miyamoto, and I wouldn't want to presume what kind of food stuff I like. Do you know what? I would probably pick somewhere casual, like The Oven, which I I think is probably Bath's best pizza place. I did have a slightly wet pizza there recently, though, which was disappointing. <laughs> um, and I, me and Matthew have argued extensively behind the scenes about the best pizza place in Bath, and <laughs> I've gone to bat for the oven, so I felt let down by my wet pizza, I'll be oh, honest. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, because yeah. if, if you took Kojima there and he had a wet pizza, he'd then take a picture of it and he'd tweet it with the caption, wet pizza, and <laughs> you'd have to deal with that becoming a meme that he was basically yeah. slamming your pizza choice. Yeah, not to mention, like, endless headlines saying, did Hideo Kojima just announce his next game in the form of a pizza? <laughs> like, like, no, he just, he just ate a very damp margarita. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, that was the only time I've had a bad pizza there. So, yeah, Miyamoto, I've got no idea. I probably, I'll probably just take both to the oven, see how it goes. It's I easy think, to book a table there. Yeah, I think I've heard in the past from Nintendo people that he likes quite traditional. British, you know, he likes to eat local food when he goes to different countries. Like that's a big that's... treat because you can't get that stuff done at home. So, like, and that that would also correlate with um, the Dragon Quest composer who talked a great length about uh, roast beef and Yorkshire puddings. Yeah, I mean, I can't help feeling like that's just like some brand guideline stuff going on there. He probably says that when he goes to France, so yeah, have some <laughs> oh, French cuisine you... now, please. Well, they, they think that the UK won't buy the Switch if he's like, <laughs> oh, fuck bangers and mash. <laughs> <laughs> 
like, I don't know. I don't know if we're that petty people. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I would gamble my reputation with Miyamoto on a pub lunch. I'm not sure I could do it. <laughs> well, like, like, like a nice gastro pub. Like, we're probably talking something quite quite fancy here. But, oh, um, the, scallop, the, the scallop shell would be good for that. That's like a scallop shell for those at home is a very fancy fish and chip shop and bath. It's like you you pay more than 10 quid for fish and chips, but it's like really fucking good. And close to my house, which is also good. So um, I, I, but, I, I, yeah. might, I might take him to menu Gordon Jones. I think he'd like the playfulness of the menu being kind of cooked up fresh every day. That is true, actually. That I suppose if you... Yeah, like um, I, I am picking places that cost like 10 quid for a main course, whereas Matthew's gone for the place gonna... 130 quid. Right, you, you will push the boat out a bit because you want to impress him. Yeah. It's like um, it's like one one dish is like a cube of like ox curry, and then the next dish is like you know um, a single chip and a single piece of fish. But and it a tastes like fun fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, yes, good stuff there. I, I think we've answered that one well, yeah. Matthew. Um, felt like we spent about fifty minutes on that one. So uh, good stuff. That was a great question though. I really came alive there. Like I suddenly like jolted to life. Like oh yeah, food. Let's fucking do this it. What, this um, is yeah. I love that. People like talk about injustice in the games industry, and we're like, uh, and like <laughs> talk for twenty minutes about fucking chips. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We know what we're about, I guess. Uh, I guess, like, if you want red hot industry commentary, I feel like we've established that this is not that podcast, really. Um, yeah, but sure. if you want, if you want red hot sandwich analysis, we're you guys. Oh, yeah. um, you ain't get that so on good. point. Okay, Matthew, um, are you reading out the next one? I think you are, right? Hi, hi, guys. Uh, congrats with the podcast. It's great. Now that we live in the post Blorco era, it has reminded me of my only interaction with Matthew. The old issues of O&M used to have the staff Meverse accounts under the profiles in every issue. The Wii U times truly were bleak, but as a teenager, I thought this was very cool. I once mustered the courage to put a cheeky reply to one of Matthew's posts on Meverse, of which there must have been about three max. To my surprise, I got a reply, and I think it was about him being a Kirby skin in the new Smash Brothers game. But to me, this was my first real brush with fame. Um, I think you're overstating that a little, but thank you. Um, I find myself uh, here enjoying the pod as a result of deciding to see what the people I followed on Meverse all those years ago were up to. So to say Meverse was a total failure would be a lie. My actual question that may be interesting and actually provide some precious pod content would be, if you could make a spin-off from an existing game series that had to be a different genre, what would you do? This question was inspired by the Scrap Retro Studios Boo and Chic games that surfaced a short while back. Hopefully this question isn't too specific or weird. Thanks guys, from Grant. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Do you have an immediate answer to this one, Matthew? Well, I was thinking about this in the vets this afternoon because we had to take our cats to the vets for their checkup. Um, mm. I was doing some prepping, and for some reason, the thing that popped into my head was I would love a, <laughs> I would love an open world adventure game set in the universe of Monkey Island. I was thinking for some reason Monkey Island was a series that popped into my head, and I thought I really love the tone and like attitude and character of that world and i remember playing those games when i was young and thinking they really sparked my imagination and you know while i love the stories i love the hints at like other islands or that you know it was this sort of you know spread across the caribbean and there was you know there was this idea that there were lots of adventures yet to be told um and to have a game which kind of captured that like artistic style 
that tone of voice in an open world game, like, like just a big funny open world game, you know, is is a I think a relatively easy sell. I hope people get on board with. Um, I also wrote down my notes, you know, to kind of represent that character and comedy and its mechanics and its open world ideas. I don't really know what that looks like. What a kind of an an open world comedy game. I guess it would probably be an expansion of what what they were sort of doing in Psychonauts. I guess that has a bit more sprawl to it. But um, yeah. That's what I'd do. I saw something this week that set my imagination off, actually, which was, um, I think, like, uh, there's a couple of ex-Days Gone guys who are going around doing interviews at the moment, and one of them said that they wanted to do an open-world version of Resistance, um, the old PS3 exclusive. Oh, right. And, like, I kind of would have been up for that, because I think Resistance has got, like, not tons of character to it, but it's got quite nice iconography, fun guns and stuff, and, like, it's kind of, like, basically like America occupied by aliens, and, mm. like, the aliens look pretty good, and, like, the... They always had big monsters in them, so I feel like that could have been could have been quite fun in the kind of Sony open world format that they've been um, pa- uh, sort of messing around in. And my instinct with these is always to ask, ask uh, to say things like um, uh, an RTS version of X, but like there's not kind of many of those that I don't really sort of have to hand. Um, mm. I think someone tweeted this week that um, basically every episode of the new Succession should be a Hitman level. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But I think that about a lot of films as well, because Hitman has such a filmic vision that I would happily just play loads of levels set in other people's fictional worlds. But that doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> E3 would be a great Hitman level. Oh, um, God. So yeah, good. like you go through, go through the convention centre, then go to like a presentation across the street or something. And like, yeah, like just especially because real E3 is like not happening this year. That could be really, really fun. Like how um, I think there's an EGX level in Hotline Miami that, that was added. That was quite fun. I suppose on these lines, Matthew, like, did you see that um, Nintendo Kart's rumour this week? That it might be Smash Bros. kind of style roster, but for Mario Kart. Did you have any thought on that? Thoughts on uh, that? Like, I don't know. That, it doesn't massively excite me. I don't think the character element of Mario Kart is what... Like, I, I couldn't really care less that it's got, like, the cast in it. You know, when they're, like, the new DLC is going to add... Piranha Plant, I'm like, eh. Like, for me, Mario Kart is the tracks. Um, like I'm, I, I don't really care who's in the car. It could be no one. Like, they could just be, like, <laughs> control by remote <laughs> control, and I would still have just as much fun. I guess I guess we wouldn't have the sinister Luigi drive-by meme without that, but um, I, 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 that doesn't feel like a revolutionary idea to me. And other than opening up Nintendo franchises for track ideas. I guess that could be cool. Maybe that's the cool yeah. element that people are excited about. <laughs> yeah, that was cool in the DLC for um, uh, Mario Kart 8. So, uh, yeah. That'll do for that one, Matthew. Should we move on to the next question? Yes. Hey, guys. First of all, love the podcast. I find you have some of the most interesting and informed opinions on video games out there. Keep up the good work. I must apologise, as my question is not actually video game related. But as I view this podcast as a subgenre of gaming, meat, and general bar tourist information, <laughs> I hope that's acceptable. Living in Bristol, I find the concept of people actually living in Bath a little strange, as I think most people in Bristol view Bath as one big tourist attraction or somewhere to take your parents when they visit. Although, as I visit Bath four or five times a year, it's good to know where to go to get a decent sandwich or some quality meat. Um, my question is, what is your opinion of Bristol? How do people living in Bath view Bristol? Do you have any favourite meat tents there or any or general places to go to pick up a great sandwich? 
I think I'm pretty up on some of the best eateries in Bristol, but wondered if you had any thoughts. P.S. I think every episode should have at least 10 minutes of uh, non-video game and law building chat. Thanks for the entertainment you bring me each week. That's from Sean Mitchinson. Bristol, Matthew. I don't feel like people in Bath have any particularly strong thoughts on Bristol. It's, uh, it's not like any kind of like rivalry. It's not like Portsmouth and Southampton or anything like that. Is, uh, yeah. Does anything come to mind for you there? No, like it's it's the bigger, more exciting place by most people's standards. But I, I, I like the quietness and quaintness of Bath. It's more my speed. Bristol's like, I was going to say it's Bath hard mode, but I don't think it is. Because it's just, it's so much bigger. It's so much more ambitious. I'll tell you what it's like. You know how in a lot of Far Cry games, the start of the campaign locks you into a small area and then when you get into the main campaign, the whole map opens up and you're like, oh, fuck me, there's so much to do. Uh, that's <laughs> Bristol. Whereas Bath is like, you know when, I think in Fable 2, you could buy that island, like DLC? <laughs> yeah. Bath is like that, basically. It's like <laughs> three to four hours of content at most. You know? Oh, that, yeah, that, that is the problem living here many years, is that like the first visit your parents come, you take them to the baths, you take them to the Crescent, the assembly rooms great fills a day quite happily second time you've got absolutely nothing you're just like i really hope they don't mind if i pack them off to the you know the thermae spa for like five hours because i've basically <laughs> got nothing else to do yeah uh yeah i like bristol i worked in bristol for a little bit uh when i worked at the Oxcast. they're based in bristol so i associate it with like some of the stress of doing the, the, the xbox youtube channel uh i did a lot of stress eating but there's some amazing foods i mean true to form Probably the best sandwich I've ever had is from Bristol Sandwich Sandwich, um, a shop which, like, just from the title, you can tell it really knows what it's about. There's St. Nick's Covered Market, which is basically just, like, um, that weird alley from Harry Potter with all the magician shop, except <laughs> it's just all selling, like, hot lunch portions of meat. Um that's yeah. that's really good. There's a place there that does like chicken kebab wraps, but the the they use a non bread instead of like a pitta uh, called matina. Um, I ate so many of those, and it was a nightmare because that's I was working in Bristol when I was trying to lose weight for my wedding and trying not to eat any carbs, and basically everything I loved was was so unholy. And yeah, that was that was tough. Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got four suggestions here, Matthew. Ooh, okay. Um, they're very touristy suggestions, as in, like, you can reach them all from the train station, <laughs> the Temple Meads, quite easily. So the Ox in Bristol I really like. Um, that is, uh, like, in a little basement, and it's really nicely lit. Beautiful restaurant. It reminds me of going on American breast trips, actually. Just kind of really fancy sort of place. You um, take Kojima there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That is actually, like, a legit amazing place. I love that place. Um, the uh, Pasture, the um, steak place in Bristol, they do this like smoked bread and smoked uh, smoked bread, and I think the butter is smoked as well oh for God. like starter. And that's one of the like, nicest like bits of bread I've ever put in my mouth. That's um, <laughs> a great place. Does have absolute cracking blue cheese sauce for their steak as well. Top stuff. On the St. Nick's Market uh, tip, Matthew, eat a pitta. In, it there is fucking amazing. Um, great falafel wraps, really, really good. Um, absolutely layered with hummus. I like that. Um, you can't get, you can't really get much in the way of that stuff in Bath apart from um, what's it called, Chaiwala, which we discussed before. Finally, I wanted to nominate um, Small Bar in Bristol. I think it's on King Street, um, and like that place, like at at night, does like 
basically fried chicken, like a, a fist of fried chicken in a bun um, that's just fucking with like Korean um, sort of sauce, which is just incredible. Um, so yeah, those are my four places. Made me made myself very hungry there. So um, yeah, I am. Um, I think Bristol's excellent. I would probably have lived there if like Future's Office was there. Like no problem. I wouldn't have lived in Bath. It just happened to be that Future's Office was here, so I lived here because I'm lazy, and that's kind of it. Yeah, so, um, it's a bit. It's a bit loud and busy for me. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I think Bath is super loud and busy personally, but like it's just all in a smaller space, I guess, so it's more manageable. But yeah, um, but, um, yeah thank you for the question there. I hope um, I hope that you're satisfied with our choices. I need to go to a sandwich sandwich one day and oh have some of these. They do southern fried chicken, coleslaw, and like a sort of a Cajun sauce. Also brownie slabs, which are as big, big as a house. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Didn't you say you were once um, being like live-streamed on the Yogscast feed and like you bought two sandwiches <laughs> and then all these kids were going, red shirt guy bought two sandwiches! Didn't that happen? <laughs> yeah, it was during the Jingle Jam. They have an office camp and the wrapping paper they use on the brownie is, is the same wrapping paper they use for the sandwiches. And because I bought a sandwich and a brownie, they saw my two similarly papered packages on my desk and assumed that I had bought two sandwiches for lunch. And, yeah, it's just all these teenagers doing, like, emojis to say I'm a fat bastard. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, we laugh now, but you raised £800,000 for charity that day, Matthew. <laughs> um, you, sh- you, sh- you should be very proud of yourself. Um, <laughs> next, uh, next question, then. Uh, dear the back page of Video Games Podcast, many of your episodes, especially the year retrospective episodes, basically count as history lectures. Well, it makes it sound a bit severe, I think, but anyway. Uh, you are doing a service to posterity, and posterity will do a service to you by listening to your fun educational podcasts in future. A year, ten years, and I'm sure even a hundred years from now, someone curious about antique video game culture will find your dusty tomes in the podcast minds. Well, after Big Sunny Holdings and Matthew Castle Productions have filed for bankruptcy due to disastrous investments into smell engine <laughs> games. Yeah, that's true. You now you can smell this the the fear of Randy Newman falling out of a car. Um, <laughs> I added that. Um, old <laughs> abandonware gems such as Montezuma's Return could still be played with emulators. Uh, however, there will never again be, for example, a season three of Apex Legends. Which game experiences that are lost to time or soon will be bum you out the most? Which would you want to pass on to future generations in a format more authentic than degraded JPEGs and grandpa's ramblings about around the holographic fire? Thanks for the insight from Toivo. Yeah, so um I think that I think like basically the um suggestion here about Apex Legends is a, an astute one. I think about this all the time where a place in a live service game changes, moves on and then um it's kind of gone forever. And like this meant this means more with Apex to me because I think the art direction is so nice and like the um level level design is so fantastic that um it's a shame to have made that stuff then never see it again. Um, I'm not ruling out the idea that one day they might do like, these kind of throwback service or something where mm. people who want to jump on the train can um, can come back. I assume that that might happen at some point, but uh, I do empathise. The other thing I think about is licensed games, um, the availability of those. When yeah. you look on um, like GOG's wishlist, which is a really interesting resource to see, you know, uh, people wanting to see stuff like the game, the uh, Terry Pratchett game, Matthew, the one with the detective, uh, oh, Discord Noir. Yeah. So that, for example, is always high on these lists, but has never been like re-released. And so there are ways you can play it. You can track down an expensive PS1 copy or, you know, you might have to find another means to play on PC. But 
really you just want to have that to hand because that's how you keep these things in circulation it shouldn't just be down to like people sharing it illegally on online to do it so mm. that's licensed games the thing i think about the most i thought about that a lot during the lord of the rings episode we did as well yeah. where just so many of them you can't get now how about you matthew yeah i that's 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 basically what i wrote down for this yeah you know, i was thinking about all the you know not necessarily like like 10 out of 10 cherished stuff and in a way because it wasn't originally cherished or deemed super special there's there's even less reason for kind of people to sort of look after them or remaster them or whatever but a lot of that falls into this tier of yeah interesting remastered stuff or just stuff that captures the spirit of the time you know like the soundtrack in a music game you know the licensed soundtrack in a tony hawk or a ssx or a burnout you know it's important it places it where it belongs and those decisions were made for a reason and you know the idea that you know how you look after those in maybe a more mainstream way because i think a lot of games you can kind of find in one form or another but like you say it's it's not above board and that doesn't that doesn't feel like 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 legitimate long-term conservation i mean it kind of means there will be long-term conservation but it'd be nice if there was a yeah a more uh regular way i actually hadn't thought about games of service like that that hadn't that hadn't kind of um crossed my mind but yeah that's really interesting like will you one day have a you know do they need to build a a fortnight museum that charts the development of their island or something or there's something to to kind of lock it down but it's more I, i think for me it's more like i was thinking in terms of like a tier of games that get forgotten and so there's no reason you know there's no conversation around them to, to to kind of keep them coming back you know uh, you know things like you know the trauma center series for example i was thinking about that because of the Wii draft last week you're like well you know they exist on Wii and ds and if you've got a copy and if you can find a pre-owned copy great but they're also they're not classic enough to to need remaking or remastering or whatever and a lot of those things will sort of fall through the cracks and it happens with films all the time like you know the film industry is only really bought uh, a very small percentage of its classics with it and now you've got a lot of people who think that's a shame and they're going back and you've got like nicholas winding reffins going back and like remastering and trying to rediscover things that have been lost you know things that he loved from you know even in the last 50 years a lot of stuff has gone missing and so yeah it's more like the kind of the the sort of the misfit the kind of interesting seven out of tens the kind of stuff we talk about on this podcast a lot you know, I'd love, I'd love for that to continue on in some form. It's also a bummer when these games have like really ambiguous rights, and no one knows who's actually like in charge of them. So, um, yeah. no one lives forever uh, fits that description, for example. Yeah. Um, but even stuff like where there's like there are shared stakeholders of the different bits and pieces, like Goldeneye, where it's like a Nintendo published game, but Rare made it, and Rare is owned by Microsoft. But then there's a James Bond license, and that feels like through sheer force of popularity, we'll get some other version of that, seemingly from the um, achievement leaks. But like um, otherwise, yeah, it's hard to see. So it's, so many of these are just likely to be forgotten because they don't have that same sort of framework of popularity. Yeah. Did you read that really good feature on PC Gamer where the what's the remaster studio Night Dive that they kind of ran all those games past them, saying like, why hasn't this been remade? Or like, would you like to do? Or would you? What would you do with this? And he kind of gave some insight into the kind of conversations that happen and the challenges around certain things. That was rad. It was like, I've emailed and I'm just waiting to hear back. And like, um, this one isn't a goer because we apparently the license hold doesn't like it or something like that. Like yeah. that. I think June, actually, that was the response to that one. Yeah, that's the, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting stuff, Matthew. I think that covers it quite nicely. So, next question. Uh, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Love the pod. It brings back warm memories of spending A-level free periods at my friend's house trying to murder all the plot-essential NPCs of Morrowind. A bittersweet memory because I was temporarily banned from said house by said friend's mum for repeatedly throwing nutshells at their fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just emailing in about the Lord of the Rings episode. Um, I- <laughs> That's my really mum would hate that as well. <laughs> yeah, my mum would hate that as well. I have no idea why I can even vaguely remember intellectual property rights details from when I was nine years old. But from what I recall, EA couldn't make a fellowship game because another company wouldn't give up the rights they had to a fellowship of the ring game. And if I recall right, kind of rush went out to retain them, ostensibly based on the book rather than the film around the time of EA's Two Towers game. I had it and can't remember much about it. It had a really, really shit stealth section, so it could possibly have been an acclaimed horror title if released now. <laughs> I also had an emulated version of the, the SNES Lord of the Rings game back when I was very young. It was great. Merry and Pippin got killed by some bats very early on in my <laughs> clueless infant playthrough, and it was impossible to revive them. <laughs> Imagine that was the, how they died in the film. Uh, <laughs> Keep up the gaming and the rich seams of culinary lore. All the best, James. Um, yeah, I, so um, I do... I don't know if I remember if I mentioned this on the episode, but like, I think it was like whatever Sierra was called then, the company that sort of merged with Activision Blizzard later on, Vivendi. Mm. Like that that company, I think, put out the Lord of the Rings book game and it did get like middling reviews. But I seem to remember that game coming out at the same time as the Two Towers game. Maybe I'm wrong there, but like... And then they were meant to make a Two Towers one based on the book, but never did. So, yeah, I appreciate the um, the update there and um, the memories of the SNES Lord of the Rings game. That's very funny. Apparently um, that SNES game, because I was reading about it this afternoon, had, with the multi-tap, you could play it up to five players controlling five members of the Fellowship at the same time in a kind of top-down Zelda-y thing. Apparently, there's like in emulated versions, people have unlocked it so that you can play multiplayer the whole Fellowship of the Ring. But the weird thing is you obviously have to wait for the characters to turn up in the story. So the other players have, like, nothing to... At the start, it's just Frodo and Sam, and then you know, the other two join in. And, you know, if you're Aragorn, you're sitting it out for, like, a, a large chunk of the game. But I did really like the idea of a multiplayer game where you played, like, collectively as the whole fellowship. That would be awesome. Yeah, that's a nice idea. I think that was, like, a game that got 3 out of 10, though, from a bunch of people. Yeah. Like, I don't think it was... I don't think at the time it was even considered good. Uh, no, no, um, not at all. But the, I think the core idea of, like, you know, a game about a party where every member of the party has to be played by someone, that could be that could be really interesting. I do also like the idea of, like, um, a permadeath um, SNES Lord of the Rings game, where it's, like, um, basically, uh, it, <laughs> it's, you're at the end and it's Gimli with one HP throwing the <laughs> ring into, the, into Mount Doom. Um, <laughs> That could be good. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that would be so good. The story has to adapt to which characters <laughs> <Yeah>. you've got. <laughs> so it's yeah, just Gimli just... is everyone's romance interest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just... He just beheaded Gollum the second he turned up. And then they're like, just just soldiered on. Yeah, very good. Um, <laughs> okay, great stuff. So, um, next question, Matthew. Also... The audaciousness of throwing something to someone else's fire. I mean, rightly angry mum in that situation. Uh, he probably thought, well, it's who cares? It's on fire anyway. It'll just burn up. It's but the like, repeatedly uh... throwing nutshells. <laughs> you know, it's the I idea love... of, like, I've told you, like, so many times <laughs> not to throw nutshells into our fireplace. <laughs> but, like, you're a guy who has cats. Don't your cats basically do that sort of thing all the time? And, like, uh, torment you and Catherine? Well, they know. torment us, but, like, they're animals. They don't know any better. We're talking about a boy here. 
<laughs> a living boy <laughs> who had the choice not to throw those nutshells. It's a perfect, like, wanker kid thing to do because, like, that's exactly what kids are like to do. Somebody that will just annoy you enough that's like, you can't scream and lose your temper. But, like, they know it's bullshit what they're doing. And, like, I, I, that's exactly what kids are perfect at, is finding that middle ground there. So, um, well done there, James. That was great. I, I think we really enjoyed that one. Yeah, next up then, Matthew. Hi, thanks for the podcast. Uh, I've been really enjoying wading through the back catalogue, having come to it rather late. My question is about the career trajectories of games journalists and how that has been affected by the decline of the popularity of printed games magazines. Back in the day, did games journalists mainly aspire to be editors? And if so, where do you go from there? I was wondering if there were many games editors in their 40s or older. It feels like you are seasoned veterans and I believe you're in your 30s. Was there reticence for a print journalist to write for websites? And what is the trajectory of a games journalist's career now? Thanks, Ashley. I don't have loads of thoughts on the decline element of this, but like the question at the end about was there reticence for print journalists to write for websites... I think like just from my experience on PC Gamer, I really liked having the opportunity because it was a way you could just like double your skill set and like and kind of like progress. So I actually really enjoyed that because it was a, a bridge for me to move onto the website and and you know open up a whole different part of my career. So mm. you know th- there are different skill sets involved in print and online, but if you can do print, you can do online. You just have to learn how a CMS works, then you're fine. You can just let a lot of the same principles apply. Any thoughts mm. on that, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had moments where, you know, even quite early on, when you'd look around and you think, hmm, I wonder what happens to, like, old games journalists. Or, like, you know, because basically everyone moves up a spot and then everyone on the magazine moves up a spot promotion-wise is tend to how it works. But you do think, where do they go? And, and, and like, the sad reality of it is... Like, there aren't a lot of 40-year-old games journalists because they get to editors and then your only choice there is to basically become like a publisher or something a bit more businessy. And so they tend to leave and just go and do more lucrative things or shift into PR. Um, Like, there's very few people who are, like, proper veterans. And if they are there, you know, there's just not many, like, job... There's not many roles for veterans to move into um, these days. That definitely happens. And then you you spend your 20s going, why are there no old games journalists? And then when in your 30s, you're like, oh, I get it. And you go and get a different job. <laughs> or you shift to online where, you know, the you know, the, the rules are a bit more flexible and, you know, we're still finding out, you know, there are quite a lot of older people in online. But I don't know. I can't really speak to that because I'm like one of the only print people who didn't make the trip online because, uh, I don't know, I'm a fool. <laughs> You, you went online in a different way, Matthew. Yeah, I went video. video. That's a lot more complex to, to go from print media to uh, video, I would say. So Yeah, the problem with that is like video is a young young person's medium. And by the time I made the jump into that, I was a little a little too old. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not a very convinced... I, I am very much a how-do-you-do fellow kids on YouTube, uh, unfortunately. Well, uh, Matthew says that, but um, in our sort of like Patreon-exclusive um, Jack and Daxter playthrough series, Matthew will finally ascend to the video stardom <laughs> that was, uh, he was always destined for. So, um, yeah, that's a joke, by the way. Yes, could be a good stretch goal, £10,000. Um, okay, good. I wouldn't um, play so- Jack and Daxter for £10,000. <laughs> Okay, next question. Hello once again from Vancouver. Not sure if you remember, but last year I was on the verge of buying a Series S and asked if it was a bit much having all three platforms under the telly. Well, as a follow-up, I managed to hold off for most of the year, then took the plunge when Forza was too much to resist. 
I've been having a great time jumping between them, and yes, even though I'm a spoiled man-child, it does feel good having all the bases covered this gen, as now they're all doing some great stuff. Anyway, as a question, I was wondering if there were any other generations you'd consider it pretty essential to have had all of the main players. And are there any, if you were running out of things to do in, in a time machine, you'd go back and tell your younger self, actually it's okay just to stick with this one box, don't bother with the others. Thanks for a great year plus of podcasts and helping me, and I imagine many others, get through a bit of a bastard of a time. That's from Tim. Matthew, I can't say I've ever really regretted buying all three po- uh, uh, three consoles. Like, yeah. Even the even buying the Wii U, I was like, I don't really regret that in retrospect yeah. because I played Breath of the Wild on there. I feel the way it was meant to be played, and Bayonetta two, and I don't know, it's, it's still good to have around for playing Wii games in slightly nicer resolution. So I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I I had to really go all the way back to third generation, so NES generation, where I think having a NES but not having a master system makes perfect sense. The master system is not a not a valuable thing in my mind, but like that is how far back you have to go before like a, before there is a machine which doesn't have something to say. I wouldn't get a Sega Saturn either personally, um, but I'm just not a Sega guy. But uh, yeah, outside of that. There's kind of enough essentials on every machine. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, um, I was thinking, for example, like the generation where I felt like it was probably the most important to have all three was the Xbox GameCube PS2 generation. I think maybe it's because yeah. they're fresh in my mind from doing the podcast. But like, I know even at the time I was there thinking, well, I, you know, in an ideal world, I'd be playing Halo and Silent Hill two and wind waker you know what i mean yeah Um, i I think that's i think that is that's the generation to have everything after that i think having a wii and one of the others is a good combo yeah for sure i think like nintendo pc is a good way to cover your bases these days as well yeah um uh yeah for sure especially as um microsoft and sony bring more of their games to pc so yeah i think we've answered that one matthew Hmm. let's move on to the next question i love the podcast three questions I consider myself a fan of not just video games, but professional video game journalism. I sometimes enjoy the analysis of what makes a game good or bad as much as video games themselves. With the decline of video game magazines, the rise of Twitch streamers, YouTube and user reviews, should we worry about the long-term health of video game journalism as a sustainable industry slash career field? And what are the best ways that I and other game journalism fans can support your industry, either financially or not, i.e. Patreon, magazine subscriptions, writing podcast reviews, turning off ad blocker etc uh, finally Valheim is my vote for game of the year for 2021 I love the sense of adventure the scale and the survival bits struck the right balance of augmenting one's adventure rather than hindering it or overwhelming the player I don't believe that survival games are either of your go-to games but I also think Valheim may be the best non-survival gamer's survival game your thoughts on Valheim Thank you. From Patrick in Indiana, USA. I haven't played Valheim myself. Yeah. That's on me. Yeah, I should, because loads of people I respect think it's cool. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I bought it to play with someone at some point, and so I do own it, but no, it's not not come up. Um, I think I then thought, I'll wait till it's out of early access, or more stuff's been added to it to jump in, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. As for the best ways to support games journalism, like, I think that just like if you if there's something you like support it that's basically what it comes down to if they have a supporter program if you can subscribe to them that's the best way to support them like uh, you know i guarantee they would appreciate your support like no matter what 
and like it wouldn't it wouldn't go amiss even if it's like you know even if you're buying something on a recommendation from that outlet like that's supporting them as well um and you're trusting their sort of buying advice like that's all that stuff kind of goes towards you know yeah no i agree i you know also like you're telling other people about their stuff if you think other people would like it and 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 this may sound very self-serving telling writers that you like that you like their stuff you know either in the comments or on twitter whatever the morale boost can honestly get you through a bad week like i've had times where i've been in a really foul mood and just someone saying like oh this was this was you know really spot on or whatever or you know just the feedback we get on this podcast it uh, you know it can carry you through through some bleaker times in terms of like the wider thing about like you know, should we fear about it being sustainable industry slash career field? I mean, that to me sounds like someone who's tempted or interested in maybe pursuing it. And is there going to be like a long term version of it? And it's like, yes, there will be, but it's just going to be different to what you probably read growing up. Like this is, you know, in the 15 years I've done it, it's a completely different thing now. Um, like a completely different discipline. There are so many more avenues into it. Like there are lots of weird sub parts of games journalism now, um, particularly online. It's it's still there. There's still loads of it. It's just slightly different. And uh, yeah, sorry, that's not a very comprehensive answer. <laughs> no, I share the, I share the feedback about like um, tell a writer you like if you like their stuff. Like that's a that is for sure like valuable. Um, just because those writers are probably used more used to getting negative feedback than positive feedback from being online, because that's what being online is like. Mm. Um, see my comment about being told to stick to flipping burgers um, by slagging off Loki. That was uh, good times. <laughs> um, I have yeah. had to eat so much shit because of that Blorco tweet, and yeah. it's just meaningless. People get angry and cross about anything. People need to chill the yeah. fuck out and get off my case. <laughs> I do think that people are on a hair trigger since um, the pandemic started as well. Like they're more likely to get upset about things, um, mm. which is kind of understandable, but also not very pleasant if you're in the front lines of covering games media. So, yeah, praise much appreciated. I mean, you know, the nice feedback we get to this podcast—that's a massive part of why we do it. You know, we haven't mm. so far we haven't done it for any kind of like profit or anything like that. We don't do ads or anything like that. So, the feedback is, um, you know, that's like currency for us. So, mm. um, yeah, it, for sure, it has value. So hopefully that helps. But um, yeah, Valheim, I vow to play at some point. So next one, Matthew. Um, hey, Sam and Matt. Firstly, I wanted to say thank you so much for your podcast. You're both hilarious and have such great recommendations and experiences about computer games to share, including many I'll likely never have time to play. Mm. I really enjoy hanging out with you both, and the wholesome banter and warm friendship you both share have really helped me get through another most pretty bleak year. Oh. My top... <laughs> that was good. Yeah, it was not very nice. Thank you. Uh, all these words are very kind, by the way. I'm not really responding to them, but they are very nice to these people who say they love the podcast. Thank you so much. I've completely desensitized your praise now. <laughs> I think it's just because my brain's stuck in the um, thinking about steak from that Bristol question. Um, that's, uh, that'll happen sometimes. Um, I'm just thinking about top- trapping JC in a shed. <laughs> Uh, my top game I played in 2021 is definitely Sunless Skies, a steampunk horror adventure RPG by Fail Better Games. Um, the writing and world building in this game are honestly the best I've ever experienced, and the art style is truly beautiful. No other game has impressed me more with its humour, satire, and understanding of human failures and vices. The gameplay mechanics, maps, and difficulty curve are much improved over the previously released Sunless Sea, and make this game a better entry point to the series. Um, I think the team have also done a great job of balancing the complexity of the game's decision uh, systems, neither too black and white nor too complex. RIP the countless crewmen I have sacrificed to the void in my quest for a supposedly good cause. 
I'd be keen to hear any thoughts you both have on the game and would definitely recommend you both give it a play sometimes. Um, so I did play Sunless Skies at the start of the pandemic. I played Sunless Sea previously and I did find it a bit gruelling, I'll be honest. Like it was a bit too <laughs> grind you down and then do the same stuff again. But here they kind of found ways to make the roguelike nature of it a bit more, bit more palatable. Um, mm. The fact you're set in space as well is very, very cool. Uh, like this kind of like Victorian sort of space kind of like location that's really really nice um i, I love the art the art style of um of, of that they, they have a fail better and the the writing is obviously fantastic i need to play more of it but really liked what i played i would say yeah for sure like um contemplated seriously getting the switch version so um yeah sunless sky is definitely one i'd like to have more detailed thoughts on at some point matthew any thoughts yeah but i i've i've played less of these than you have i've got a bit of a fail better blind spot um but I, I really like the people. I follow a lot of the Fail Better people on Twitter and social media and whatnot, and they're always super smart and entertaining. And um, I've listened to like a lot of talks and interviews with them at like GDC things or, or you know stuff like that. Uh, and they're always super smart and switched on. Um, yeah, I, I just don't know. I haven't spent more time playing these things. We should do that though. Yeah, I think their next game is called Mark of the Rose. I think it is. That's the um, sort of uh, sort of visual novelly romance thing, right? Yeah, that sounded really cool. I mm. look forward to seeing the the result of that. But yeah, um, really, you know, just a, a really singular developer in terms of the scale of the very specific type of thing that they do. Um, so yeah, I'm all for supporting them. And um, yeah, that I, I echo what you say about loads of them seem rad on social media. So that's good. Um, okay, Matthew, next question. What gaming trope gets on your tits the most <laughs> that you would ban developers from including in their game if given the chance? Thanks for the great <laughs> podcast. Really refreshing take on gaming. And congrats on the first year. Here's to many more. And that Patreon you keep talking about from Alex. Uh, I don't know. Like, um, I think like level gating still kind of bums me out in games. And like, um, mm-hmm. I think I wish Assassin's Creed would not do that anymore. But then I haven't played. I actually haven't played Valhalla, so I'm talking. I'm reflecting on Odyssey there. I don't know. Does Valhalla have the same thing, Matthew? Um, it's a bit. It's a bit gentler with it. Yeah. Um, it feels less like there's loads of endless maths going on. Like it, it, it feels like you're you can play it more like an Assassin's Creed. It doesn't feel like you're chipping away at an superhuman health bar, which I think is really the problem with that level gating. It's just when it becomes really unrealistic and drawn out. Yeah, that was that was just what I didn't like about Origins and yeah. Odyssey. And like, I just, yeah, I, I think games have found other ways to do this stuff. And I think that it also turns a game about exploration into you not really exploring and just doing things in a kind of linear fashion. Um, mm. And that actually meant that I ended up missing big chunks of the map in Origins because... Um, I didn't have a reason to go explore because I might have just been killed by like a single dude with a, an arrow, um, and so I kind of might have left it. But mm. yeah, other than, other than that, um, I'm not a big I'm not a big loot guy to be honest. Realised I kind of hit had my fill with that after my last Destiny spate, so I'm, I'm sort of like not massively into the idea of like playing a shooter that's got loads of loot in it and stuff. Um, mm. And I think that the difference between the Avengers game and the Guardians game showed me that oh, actually, like I know what I like with this kind of st- kind of thing now. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm not unless it's a kind of game that's specifically built around how loot kind of like works. As a, you know, you kind of Diablo type stuff, like or Hades did loot very well. Yeah. I'm not. I don't want loot in every game. Is what I'm saying, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, what about you, that's, Matthew? Yeah, uh, auto platforming. I find very, very boring. 
like mm. the idea that it's meant to be thrilling and it's like the kind of fake peril moments of the handheld or the handhold that falls away and then drake goes oh my god and just that everyone does it you know everyone it just doesn't feel like i'm playing it really does feel like i'm hiding a loading screen when i do that stuff um obviously as part of that i think the um aggressive signposting of like interactive elements you know the famous thing with the painted white grips in like tomb raider and all that i just i find that kind of visual language um a bit tiresome i'm not a fan of the anti-ending where games build up and up and up and then they end (laughs) on like a super quiet reflective moment because they assume that kind of veering away from your traditional exciting climax is the kind of grown-up or intellectual thing to do like often it just leaves me thinking oh well, that was a real downer um and uh that's a bit of a sony thing like a lot of their games their AAA stuff i love them right up until the, the very final thing where they feel the need to kind of basically do the Na- you know naughty dog did it once and it worked and now everyone's doing it um oh, but to be fair naughty dog also subverted it really well in the last of us part two where you might think the game is over, then it isn't. Yeah, yeah, that's that is true. There are a lot of endings to that game. Yeah, yeah that's true. But the, the the ending ending is excellent. I would say. Yeah, but, I think um, I think yeah. the, the one where it really rubbed me up the wrong way was actually God of War, which I I I really loved that game and the progress with it and the sense of pace and momentum. And I actually thought it ended on a on a real shrug. It just didn't. Yeah, it didn't really do it for me. So I just don't think people should be embarrassed about ending the game with your most spectacular boss fight, be it in space or not um like it's okay it's okay to end big um if you end big i will come out and probably think better of the game even though i've had a bad time like whatever i think of resident evil 3 the final boss uh, like the final boss kill is so good that i come out going ah it's kind of all right <laughs> that's uh that's fair but squeezing through a wall to hide a loading screen oh. thing i w- I would rather, when I come across that in a game now, I would rather just have a loading screen, to be honest. Like, <laughs> um, And obviously, you know, the consoles have SSDs now, so maybe this is less likely. But definitely when I was doing I'm just doing it in Final Fantasy 15 and like just loads of games that did it, I was just like, nah, I just don't want to anymore, please. Yeah. It's like, we're not fooling anyone. It's like the, the forever lift in Mass Effect. We know what's going on. Like, we can, we're, all grow, we're all grown up, so we can handle a loading screen. Yeah, like, um, I've, I've got like plenty of things to be doing during a loading screen now like it's not like 10 years ago where you didn't have twitter on your phone (laughs) like now i'm quite happy to spend 30 seconds if anything when i'm playing a game i'm like i wish this game would give me 30 seconds where i could eat some crisps or (laughs) look at my phone (laughs) yeah for sure um, so yeah, I think we've answered that one quite yeah. quite nicely there, Matthew. Yeah, I I miss loading times too to uh, shatter my attention span even more. Um, so yes, uh, this is a great one of my favourite comments we've ever had for the podcast here. Actually, hi both. First and foremost, I dig what you're doing, especially Samuel's tendency to offer comment in real time. E.g., the brilliant is this a really weird episode of our podcast, Matthew? <laughs> like all like all great art, the podcast has the ability to entertain while simultaneously commenting on its own nature. I've never listened to a podcast that has arrived at acknowledged and then surpassed self-parody so soon into its life quite extraordinary (laughs) (laughs) part of me wants to reassure you tell you're doing great don't doubt yourself but this would of course be counterproductive lean into the quirks and lean hard please and thank you um that's fantastic thank you um uh, so heard you mention crpgs as a potential subject of a future pod and at the risk of stepping on the toes of the idea you've probably already got brewing i'd like to suggest a format a uh, CRPG battle in which classics like Baldur's Gate and other Infinity Engine games are pit against examples from the recent-ish CRPG revival. 
Pillars of Eternity, Tyranny and the like, to see if the new wave stands up to the old guard. Um, maybe you could use a debate format where you each argue for a title and then some independent arbiter decides who gets the win. Or for the high effort version, maybe each game's attributes, story, visuals, characters, etc. are all assigned to score and you both have to select a characteristic and present to each other in some form of don't call it top trumps type deal. Actually, no, not that one. That's shit. <laughs> anyway, keep up the etc. etc. We all bloody love it. Yours, Andy Humphreys. Thank you for your very nice uh, note there. That's very good. Um, so... That's not a bad format. I'm not sure I have the expertise for it. I honestly pictured this episode, Matthew, as being like when Baldur's Gate 3 leaves early access, Jeremy comes on and talks about some old CRPGs, and then you kind of weigh in with a bit of your expertise, and I play a bunch of them to try and swat up for the episode. That's kind of how I saw the shape of that one in my head. But what do you think? Yeah, the only problem with this is... uh as has proved unpopular with people who are into CRPGs, I really like the Larian model, which is kind of the next sort of, I think, the next step along. But actually, uh, whenever I praise like Baldur's Gate 3, and I've, you know, I, I've written a lot about it for RPS, all the RPS old guard are like, fuck you, it's not like old Baldur's Gate. This should be like old Baldur's Gate, exactly like old Baldur's Gate. And I don't have the same affection for them. Which is why I think we would need like a Jeremy in there. Like, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I, I love Baldur's Gate one and two. I think they're fantastic games, but I don't think they're fantastic games to the extent that you know I don't want to play a shiny, all three D, much more systemic version that Larian are making. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm completely with you on that one. And like, um, yeah, I don't know. These are these are sort of tough genres to sort of brace. Sometimes they have a lot of like you know, fans that have a very specific idea of what they should be. And, like, yeah. I've seen this litigated over and over again with Bioware games um, and, like, more modern versions of RPGs where people say they're not what the RPGs used to be and all this stuff. So, yeah, like, um, I think, like, uh, yeah, I think we just need that extra layer of expertise and we can do it all at once, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know? I, thought, but I think I think it's definitely a, a, definitely a good topic. Yeah, for sure. Like, you will see that at some point. It might not be this year, but it will be at some point. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's something to think about. So um, next question, Matthew. Hey guys, when you were discussing the original Deus Ex and how it handles choices, I was reminded of my own first playthrough of the game. You get to the apartment where Paul is and he tells you to leave him rather than face the people coming to kill him. At this point, I hadn't really ever played a game with much by the way of storyline choice, so I just unthinkingly did as I was told. As time went on, I played more immersive sims and RPGs, but never revisited the original Deus Ex, and it was only years later that I discovered when reading an article about the game that you could stay and fight and save Paul. I was devastated and made a point of replaying the game to save Paul, but also to see what else you can do when you disobey a character's orders and how the game reacts. Have you ever had a similar experience where you've discovered something about a game that you've played and were surprised to discover or disappointed that you missed? Another for me was learning that there's a reference to Doctor Who's Weeping Angels in Witcher 3. Keep up the excellent work on the pod. It's a key part of my routine for getting through work on a Friday. And that's from Ian. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I sort of think that, like, uh, there's a, a few things like this. There was a giant kind of, like, big dark monstery thing in Control that I missed entirely. And I'd seen GIFs of it throughout, like, I, I'd seen GIFs of it before I'd even played Control. And I was like, I have to see what that fucking thing is. And I finished <laughs> the game and I, I didn't see it. And I was like, oh, how did that happen? And then it found out. I found out it was, like, optional content and I had to go hunt them down. But, uh, yeah, that's, like, the first one that kind of comes to mind. But, mm. um... Is there anything for you, Matthew, where there's like a big... I'm, like, not to blow my own trumpet, but I'm like reasonably thorough. I think just the, 
reviewing the games has turned me into a bit of a machine for picking at things, so I sort of find everything I need to find. Though, this is sort of similar. I, I When I played Red Dead Redemption 2, I completely forgot the plot of that. I sort of forgot that it was a prequel to Red Dead Redemption 1. I, not completely, like obviously John Marston being there puts it in its place, but I'd forgotten what happened in Red Dead Redemption 1 and who had survived, and it completely skewed like my read on that game. Because there were loads of people who I was expecting to kind of like take down or I was looking forward to dealing with. And if I just remembered, oh no, you ne- that will never happen because they're alive like years later, that probably would have changed like my perception of some of it. It's not quite the same thing, but that's the closest I could think to it. Oh yeah, there was an example of this that happened to me recently actually, which um, this makes me sound daft, but I have to uh, embrace the fact that I am daft sometimes. Um, <laughs> her story... I basically completely misconstrued the twist of that game, um, right. and like, I th- and like when I was explaining what I thought had happened to my partner, she was like, "That's not what happened," and like, <laughs> I can't remember the exact details. So, are, are there like this is spoilers for her story, which you should absolutely play? But um, is it like there, there is, is there like there's two women in it, Matthew, two sisters, or, and like it's about their their role in this story? Is that correct? Have I got that right? Well, Do you remember? I, I th- I think it's. I think it is still open to interpretation, right? Because I was saying that, like, I thought it was the same girl and two personalities. Well, and yeah, then... well, that, that's. I think that's a perfectly valid reading, right? Yeah, because I think my partner said no. That's entirely ruled out by X, Y, and Z. And like, I, I wondered, oh, did I just miss the point of this game? Because I didn't find every single clip. I did yeah. just find like sixty-six uh, yeah, percent or something. Yeah, I think that's kind of what he's going for, though, isn't it? That you can never fully know. I don't think there's anything in that game which one hundred percent like locks it in place. Okay, that one doesn't count then. Um, so yeah, I sort of like when I um, last uh, two years ago when I reached the end of the um, Red Alert giant ant missions, that was like kind of mind blowing to see the end cutscene for that because <laughs> as a kid I had failed to ever get past the second mission of that. Um, so came back as an adult, absolutely fucking bossed it, and then watched the uh, cutscene where the ants are, are being killed at the end. And I, I don't know, I felt like I completed a piece of myself as a person. So yes, um, <laughs> but I'm struggling to think of other examples, Matthew. Unless you have any others, let's move on. Let's move on. Hello, chaps. I found myself quite amused at the conclusion of the Halo episode when Matthew aired concern over the possibility of self-contradiction. I had not been listening to your show since the beginning, but I had heard enough to garner Matthew's stance on Super Mario 3D World. And yet, when I listened back to some older episodes recently, I was a bit confused to hear not only Matthew talking about how much he liked his birthday present of 3D World on his Switch, defending it against IGN's unfair review. Absolutely fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. But also Sam having a big rant about Metal Gear Solid 2, <laughs> describing it as being not very, very good and that he had fiercely disagreed with positive reviews going on to add most of it is diffusing bombs with coolant spray <laughs> then only the other week doing a special episode celebrating the game um p.s where does matthew release his anger now that his podcast with columns died he's only been uh, nice on this one so far that's from andy as well so um yeah i think i addressed this on a previous episode um because i played metal gear solid 2 again then realized again that i, I thought it was like not quite as good <laughs> as maybe i yes i don't know like it was um I think like we have to accept that contradictions are going to happen when we're 61 episodes deep into a podcast. And your opinions do fluctuate on this stuff. With MGS2, I can explain that as I have always had very complicated thoughts about that game. It's deeply flawed, but also amazing at the same time. That's just like what that game is. Um, yeah. So the, I will go back and forth on it until the day I die, Matthew. Yeah. Um, what, and, do you have any thoughts on the subject? Yeah, and like 
Mario World, you know, I'm I'm literally comparing it to my favourite game of all time. Like, that's what it's next to, and that's what it's competing with, and it's the follow-up to my favourite game of all time. It's an absolute nightmare. Um, I, you know, I think my, my final stance on it is that I really, really like Bowser's Fury. I thought that was absolutely amazing. Also, you know, whenever I get stuff for my birthday, I'm just happy and excited because it's a birthday present. Like, but getting a game for birthday or Christmas elevates it in some uh, mystical way it just becomes slightly better everything just you know that's a happy day everything tastes better everything feels better on that day yeah the other thing is as well like there are some takes where if i contradict myself the podcast has to end and like i have to like stand down like that's i'm willing to accept that if i ever say they should bring back metal gear solid 4 on a format other than the playstation 3 (laughs) that that's a contradiction too far i've i've put too much on the line for this one i i insist it must stay on ps3 i will never change my stance on that if i ever contradict myself it's all over um so yeah that's the line i will not cross but um I, i also think i'm sometimes a bit more positive than i maybe actually feel uh out of politeness because <laughs> you know we want to have a civil podcast especially when we've got guests on you don't want to be like nah that shit you know i kind of go along with it i get excited i think this is a this is a this is a positive leaning podcast i think we're looking for positivity where we can find it yeah i think so too it's not really a rant podcast no. and so yeah you always want to hear people out uh, matthew has to say that anyway because he's got a pokemon episode coming up yeah in a and weeks, like so. that isn't going to be two hours of me dunking on jay so <laughs> Yeah, although I'm sure, I'm sure he would find that funny, but yeah, um, that's going to be a good one. Okay, next question then. Oh, actually, where do you release your anger, Matthew, as mentioned there by Andy? I mean, the sad answer is I don't. It's all building up inside of me, and I'll probably have a heart attack age 43. So, yeah. Um, yeah there you or, go. Like, or, or he'll lock uh, JC's kitchen in a hut. Um, that'll be the <laughs> other way he deals yeah, with his anger. I don't know. I'll, maybe I'll develop a sort of Dexter-esque dark passenger. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. That's uh, I'll look forward to that uh, that <laughs> manifesting down the line. Yeah. Um, next question, Matthew. Ho, ho, ho. It's that time of the year again, which can only mean one thing. Oh, here we go. Eugene Acker needs to lay low from a Christmas heist. Again, this is part of the Eugene Acker is a robber fictional universe that we have no part in. Um, Fiction, very important to underline there for any lawyers listening. Yeah, this is all done with good humour. Uh, and his hidden, he's, uh, well, he's, he's laying low from the Christmas heist and he's hidden under our duvet. He's shaking with nerves and no amount of stroking his back will calm him down the only way to help Eugenaka feel better is to whisper in his ear what you consider to be the most underrated and what you think is the most overrated console only by doing this will you be able to help Eugenaka come to his senses merry christmas from tom doubt Do- is it doughty doughty we'll never know but that's fine um that's one of the ambiguity uh, there's if there's ever like an unresolved mysteries section of like the back page wiki this the tom doughty pronunciation will be on there um i, I don't wish to find out don't correct us we're, we're good um so underrated and overrated after we did the wii draft i did wonder if the wii was a little bit underrated matthew but i yeah, don't know about I don't most underrated. like I, i'll go to bat for the wii whenever so yeah but do you think it's the most underrated versus like how it's perceived by the media at large and how people talk about it not really. I, I I actually really struggle with this. Like, I don't know if there are many that I think are truly underrated or overrated. I think, in hindsight, I think the 3DS is a little underrated. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it's got great first-party games. I think it absolutely brings back some games. It basically renews some series and sets them up to, like, even greater things on Switch. 
Plus it plays all the DS games. Plus it was like a fun and playful machine before they kind of stripped that back for the, the Switch. Uh, again, we love the Switch, but it, it lacks a little bit of the Nintendo front-end magic. The 3DS is just like completely Nintendo, but also very good. And I like the 3D screen. So I, th- I think it's a bit underrated, but yeah, overrated. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's in the same way that like... I feel like every machine in that previous question, you know, I would recommend my younger self or whatever the scenario was playing every machine. Is there an I, overrated I, console? I have a good, I have an answer to this. It's very Ooh, controversial. I think the Mega Drive is the most overrated. Okay. Um, yeah. I, because I, I don't think I think you're thinking this, Matthew, but felt too afraid to say it. But I think <laughs> I, I think when you look at the library of games that you actually want to play now on that machine. I'm sure this is very different. I mean, I had one at the time. I had a Mega Drive. But, like, I think, like, a lot of it doesn't hold up well. I mean, first of all, (laughs) I I think, like, this is a problem maybe tough with this generation generally because I think that, like, the only thing I really want to go back and play on these old machines is RPGs, to be honest, like, now. Um, Or, like, 2D platformers. There's not loads else I kind of want to play. But, like, Mm. I guess when you look at the sort of... the crop of like SNES classics, like the top ten games on SNES. So I think they're a lot better than the top ten games on Mega Drive. Like apart mm. from Sonic, apart from Sonic, I don't have loads of love for these games. So I'm not really, I'm not like a fantasy star guy. I gave it, a, I gave it a go. I'm not a comic zone guy. Um, <laughs> I've played. I think Echo the Dolphin is kind of an iconic game, but I don't think it's a good game. Really, yeah. it's just really, really fucking hard and um, quite spooky and weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think the Mega Drive. I think the Mega Drive is quite overrated, personally. Uh, our listeners may hate that, but yeah, yeah sorry. I, I think that's fair. I, the, the one take I was toying with, but I think it's unreasonable, was that the last generation is one of the is a bit of an overrated generation. As in, like, I don't think PS4, Xbox One, Xbox One isn't overrated because no one rates it. PS4, like, I outside of its first party excellent games, I don't think the generation was. as good as the previous generation so it's maybe overrated in like how successful it was so you mean the ps4 wasn't as good as the ps3 generation no as in like i don't think the win because it's the winner of that generation i don't think it's as good as the generation before like i think the xbox 360 ps3 generation was better i think the xbox 360 is better than the ps4 I think this. I think I agree with you on that. I think that's partly because the uh, like there's that few years where maybe people are a bit spooked about console games and are more into mobile gaming. Like that's kind of been widely yeah. reported as a phenomenon. So I remember being told by one developer that there wasn't like loads of publishers looking to make big console games for a while there. And so yeah, like whereas 360 very different time. But, um, like, but the, the, there's a generation of journalists who came up in the ps4 era in the way that we came up in the 360 era and because of that they're like the ps4 is the shit and i'm like yeah it's great it's the, the undisputed winner of that generation but it's not like it's not the shit in the way that the ps2 is the shit or the 360 was the shit yeah I, I think like personally i feel like the differences between the consoles have become minimized over time yeah um, but now I actually, I think this generation will be a lot better than the last generation because, well, first of all, you have to consider Switch as part of this generation already. Switch is fantastic, loads of great Nintendo games mm. and and stuff. But now the arms race is original games; it's exclusive games, yeah. and like that will that arms race will make this the best generation. I hope so. Make this a make this a better generation than the PS4 generation. I think. Plus, the addition of Game Pass and the types of games you can put on there. 
means that the types of exclusives we'll see won't all be AAA from Microsoft. So you mm. actually might get you'll get some meaningful differences between Sony and Microsoft's yeah. generation. I think so. That's why I think I think this generation will be better than that gener- than the PS4 generation. And I think I agree with you that I, I prefer 360 generation to the PS4 generation. Yeah, so, but like I, yeah. I wouldn't go as far as to say overrated, but I, it, it it pinged in my head somewhere that I sort of was leaning towards that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going with Mega Drive for most overrated. Yeah, I, I think guess. that's um, yeah. And so um, underrated, I think like. I think the 3DS is a good shout. Like, um, that's it's a good library. That's not a massive library, but it's like a really robust, loads of good stuff. I think underrated as well. I think the PSP is underrated. Um, I think that like we a lot of chatter about the Vita being very good. The Vita is excellent. I think so. But um, the PSP has some like legit games. But I feel like early on the DS took such a lead that maybe the PSP didn't get that much attention. But when you look back on it, it had loads of good stuff from the God of War games to the Final Fantasy stuff that was on there and uh, you know stuff like Loco Roco and just uh, all kinds of like good exclusives on there. So um, oh. PSP, I think, is most underrated. I, I wouldn't know because a burglar took mine. So uh, <laughs> I, hope the, I, hope, I hope the vacuum cleaner burglar is enjoying that in jail where I, he, the- he rots for life. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most underrated console stolen from Matthew Carson. <laughs> Uh, a choice of that or a DS, and he took that. Come on, well, that's good. That's good news for you, though. You know, yeah, like, I know, uh, but it's it's like obviously someone who doesn't read games magazines. Yet another <laughs> crime to add to his list. <laughs> he obviously wanted to play Gangs of London on there, Matthew. Um, so, and nothing was going to stop him. Um, okay, next question. That was a great one. Thank you. Um, so, uh, this from John Glover. Uh, GameCube versus X. This is regarding the GameCube versus Xbox draft episode. Sorry, some of these have accumulated, so they're covering old episodes. Um, but you know, I'm sure people remember that one well. Thanks to the great podcast. It's the only game specific podcast I bother with week to week, and I'm glad you seem to be having fun with it. The newest episode was the best draft <laughs> so yet. Damned with faint praise. You seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> You're having a good time. You know, that's all that matters. Um, the newest episode was the best draft yet, as Matthew has finally started treating it as a competition. And though he has still made a few critically cl- uh, flawed picks, um, brackets the fifth best Hitman versus a version of MGS unavailable anywhere else? Question yeah. mark. Um, the depth of his GameCube fandom still carried him to legitimate victory for the first time. It was heartwarming. <laughs> um, also. <laughs> So that's a diss on your N64 draft picks there, Matthew. Yeah. Um, also, a little tip from a ball sports-loving American and perhaps some games caught fodder for Samuel. EA's big label had respectable GameCube versions, actually. Mario appearing in them was mind-blowing at the time, and SSX Tricky and NBA Street Volume 2 were the last great arcade snowboarding and baseball games, respectively. Actually, two great games stuck way uh, way back there. Um, thanks again for the fun. Stay safe, and you two have a nice holiday. Um, so there's no question there, but that's like just a nice feedback on the draft. Yes, and um, the one thing I will say is um, I think Amped 3 on Xbox 360 is a is a great um, arcade snowboarding game. So um, not the last one necessarily, um, SSX Tricky, but Amped 3 is um, a, a favourite of mine, uh, me, Sammy Roberts. So um, next question, Matthew. After something like 20-odd years, it's finally back. Yes, Games Master is back. And oh boy, did they do a bang-up job with this reboot. Cringe galore. Have you had a chance to watch it? And what are your thoughts on it? I'm guessing you used to watch it back in the day, right? Says Chris Doherty. Games Master was slightly before my time, the original. Yeah, so, I, can, I can appreciate that, because there's a few you, years difference between us. Yeah, so I, I, I saw this um, this new one and thought, you know, that it was like, I guess I didn't have the thing to compare it to. But, you <laughs> yeah. know, I thought, it was, I thought it was cool they used um, Trevor McDonald. He seemed to be having fun. Yeah. That was good. Any thoughts on this, Matthew? Yeah, I, I actually thought this was great. I really like this. Uh, I have very fond memories of games, you know, fond memories 
of Games Master. You know, I still occasionally look up on YouTube the classic clip of Dave Perry losing his shit when he completely biffs the uh, Mario Ice Shoot level. It's it's a classic like gaming memory for me. Uh, that's really good. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was fun. If anything, I thought it was slightly like more balanced than old Games Master. It had like review content and like midi mini like video. Uh, uh, essays uh, that Rab Florence did and I really like his video stuff with like uh, video game in Transylvania um, it kind of had that energy to it I mean it's games on mainstream TV so yeah, which I think should be celebrated I also I really like uh, is it Frankie Ward does the PC gaming show as well yep that's uh, right yeah, I just I think she's a real class act, and um, you know I like that she was putting on this show. She was heavily pregnant during it. You could, you know, she just was on screen, and I thought, oh man, I I wouldn't have the patience for that. But um, yeah, I, just, I thought it was a really classy stuff, and uh, I hope it gets recommissioned and they get to do more. Uh, so next question, then Matthew. This is from Jamie from Devon. Um, Dear Samuel and Matthew, the first gaming magazine I ever subscribed to was Cube Magazine, an unofficial GameCube magazine that ran from November two thousand one to two thousand five, published by Paragon. As a teenager reading it every month awakened a nascent ambition within me to become a games writer that sadly never came to fruition. Nonetheless, I wanted to know if either of you had any connection to the magazine. I imagine its time was a bit before either of you became professional journalists, but did you ever buy the magazine? Matthew particularly is an ardent GameCube fan. As an aside, I love the latest episode with the Xbox versus GameCube draft. This is another slightly older question. I voted for Big Sammy Holdings Xbox Mini. <laughs> as much as I cherished my GameCube at the time, I never owned an Xbox back in the day, so Samuel's console made more sense to me. A head choice instead of a heart one. Keep up the good work, Jamie from Devon. Um, well, uh, well, congratulations, Jamie. Um, Big Sammy Holdings hopes that you enjoy your Steel Battalion controller. Um, <laughs> that's like good news for you. Um, I never read Cube, Matthew. I think it was made by people I used to work with. I think it was, uh, I don't know, I think I think I just didn't I didn't read it because if I read NGC whenever I read a GameCube magazine so yeah. um, that's just the way it was any thoughts on that yeah I, I was a big NGC person that's really all I read I picked up the occasional copy of Cube I remember one issue of Cube I did get it gave away a um a free like action replay disc or something that let you play US Animal Crossing on the UK GameCube and this was like a year and a half or whatever. You know, there's a huge gap where you couldn't get Animal Crossing in Europe. So, you know, for letting me play an import copy of Animal Crossing US, you know, thank you very much. That was good. Um, I owe Cube that. I just, NGC, I thought was a lot more, a lot sillier, a lot more fun. I think Cube took itself a little seriously. It was a little, it was trying to like be a little bit more cool. And I don't think you can make a cool Nintendo mag. I just don't think it's possible. I think you have to lean into the fact that it's a like goofy goofy world of bullshit next up we have a question for your next mailbag episode if you had to come up with a new games magazine to launch this year what would it look like your billionaire backer doesn't mind what it's about just wants it to have a chance of making an impact slash finding an audience in 2022 that's from alex via twitter does that mean physically what does it look like um i I assume that it means like what is the magazine Um, right okay I think I mentioned ages ago that my dream was to make basically like millennial retro gamer. So it was like basically you would pick it up and it would always have a PS2 game on the cover or like some or something of that generation. Um, mm. That's kind of like what I I'd like. I think in fact if they just like rolled out um, old <laughs> reprinted old magazines from the noughties, I'd probably just go buy them as they are now. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Like um, I think that. Something like that is what I'd be interested in. It's long form articles on like PS2 generation stuff. Um, that's that, as a passion project. That's totally something I would do. 
I sort of, um, interesting, I bought that magazine Lock On, which has loads of beautiful illustrations in it. Um, it would be cool to do something like that that's kind of a journaly, where you commission artwork and, and essays about games that you find interesting. Like, that was that would be something that would be really cool. The presentation of that thing is, like, incredible. So that sort of thing I'd love to do. But uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one, Matthew. Yeah, uh, I can't remember what I pitched as my stupid magazine when we pitched magazines for that episode. This is where I don't want to contradict myself. Um... <laughs> I think yours is called... Was yours called, like... Uh, no, New Game Plus was my one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah My, yeah i can't remember now yeah it had some it had some it had some slightly sort of wanky name like hub world that was it hub world that was it <laughs> yeah um, um yeah, yeah it would i it would kind of probably be again like this podcast it would cover a similar period it would go back to these things it would be very like driven by like developer access and like oral histories I'd, i love that kind of stuff more about i want to find the inside story of you know i want to hear about what it was like to make trauma center these things they only really happen about prestige games like you might get an oral history about final fantasy 7 but it doesn't feel like people do that for like the weird 8 out of 10 so it would it would be that sort of stuff um i don't think it would be like a traditional kind of reviews previews type contemporary magazine so no it'd just be very indulgent lots of lots of stuff about sing Lots of columns from Shutakumi. That was definitely part of my original pitch. Yeah, that's what it would be. Yeah, so I think that, like, um, I echo what you say about uh, access to Japanese game developers, about old Japanese games. That's, mm. like, that stuff's more valuable to me than anything else because it's so yeah. elusive. Like, uh, I love seeing oral histories on, um, on like, Western-made classics as well, American games, European games, for sure. Mm. But definitely, like, when I see... I, I know, like when they they talk on um, Archipel, they talk to like Final Fantasy illustrators. That stuff to me is like gold. That's more important to me than anything else, just because. Yeah, yeah this it's the stuff I always wanted to read when I was reading games magazines. You know, so mm. yeah, um, very valuable stuff. Um, and it would sell good. five copies. <laughs> It'd be the ultimate passion project for sure. It's why I back like um, Archipel. It's because they're making the stuff that I want to see, and like I don't want them to stop. So I'm I'm, I'm my money is an implicit like please keep making this basically so um that's a good way to see supporting any creators i think who do something you like cool last question then matthew for the episode um from phil reynolds i won't hear it for a while as i'm only on the e3 pod with keza but here's a question to look forward to for when i catch up have you ever played a phone game for so long on the loo that your legs have fallen asleep and you struggle to stand up um so matthew a nice um crude image there of us both sat on the toilet to see out the um the episode any thoughts on this one <laughs> i'm more of a toilet reader than game player um, right, okay so uh and also i don't play a huge number of phone games there was a, a a very early period i guess in like early uh phone game excitement where i played a lot of that um is it temple run the one where you just like indiana jones running forwards Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I played that quite obsessively for a few weeks, and I probably played that on the toilet at some point. Um, but I'm much more likely to be um, reading an edge on the bog these days, which is really unpleasant for all my peers who write that mag, because you know, they have to imagine that's their audience. <laughs> <laughs> I like. Um, I hope that in their sort of like their little news roundup that has like good and bad things, they go bad. Matthew Carson is reading this on the toilet right now. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, <laughs> in the next one, that'd be good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, or like one of those big quotes they take, that would be good too. Um, yeah, I, I'm reading Edge on the shitter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like 
it's been a while since I played a mobile game, so on my phone, to be honest, like I don't do that as much. Like, and it feels it feels audacious to take a Nintendo Switch into a toilet. With oh, you. Uh, just... gross! I wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no it's, way. Yeah. that's disgusting. Because then it's like around the house, and no. Yeah, so I that the the <sighs> Switch stays out of the toilet. The Switch is by my bedside table. That's like exactly where it belongs. Um, no. So yeah, there's uh, you've got to draw a line somewhere. Oh um, with, yeah, I'm with, I'm with Matthew Castle on that. Just um, thinking, but yeah, Moto would really disapprove. If I could think of a mobile game that like I put too much time into and would have played on the toilet at some point, like Game Dev Story, that's like a game that when I got my iPad in 2011 or tw- or something, yeah, picture a much skinnier me on the toilet playing Game Dev Story, coming up with fictional <laughs> games. It's like waiting for my golf RPG to absolutely fucking take off. That's like big, <laughs> big Sammy energy in 2011. Thoughts on that, Matthew? Do I have to have thoughts of you taking a shit? (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever play Game Dev Story? Like those Kairosoft like sim games? They're like quite. I I, I didn't play it, and I remember like it doing the rounds and people talking about it. (laughs) They give you all of the free to play sort of like um, kind of like it makes all the things in your brain gonna go off, but like doesn't you don't have to pay for them in in game microtransactions because they're there. So that's the good thing about those games, but. There's definitely a sense that, like, I I felt like my brain was rotting after a while, and I just had to stop. Yeah. But yeah, that was um, that was good times. So um, on that dour note, Matthew, uh, the the image of us sat on the toilet, uh, not together, <laughs> I should point out. Um, let, that the uh, episode has come to an end. Another successful mailbag in the can, so to speak. Um, so <laughs> for those listening at home, if you'd like to um, send in questions for future episodes, we have a plan now to do more of these kinds of episodes where we talk. Um, we do, we have listener questions at the end um, because me and Matthew this year, while we won't have one for January, I don't think we're going to do monthly what we've been playing episodes. So we'll append a bunch of these onto the um, to the end of the different episodes. So uh, backpagegames at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us a question, you can also tweet us a question at backpagepod on Twitter. That's where you can follow us for any updates of the podcast. Um, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? You can find me at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Okay, and I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. We're off to eat a massive dinner, and uh, we wish you well. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye for now.